Thank you very much. It's a real privilege. Just say it's a real privilege to be serving you guys. It's a real privilege to be bringing God's Word. I find it amazing that I get to spend some of my days in the week studying God's Word sometimes to actually then share with you uh, the things that it says. And in particular, I think the thing that's profound about that is it's not just something so that you learn and so that you hear something of God's voice. Actually, in the preparation stage, I think anyone who preaches will say this. Actually, the greatest work takes place in those who are preaching because they sit for an extended time under God's word. So I want to thank you for that privilege. Uh, We are in the first part of a three-part series on the book of uh, Isaiah uh, called Advent. So it's going to be a mini Advent series. Uh, and what we're going to look at today, we're going to look at Isaiah 7. Next week, David's going to look at Isaiah 9. And the week after that, Philip's going to look at Isaiah 11, I believe. Uh, and it's, Isaiah has this wonderful ability as a prophet of the Old Testament to point forward to point towards the, the people of Israel, I'll explain in a moment, were in a dreadful situation, but he was pointing to a day of hope, a day where a saviour would come, a day where a saviour would come who would be far beyond their expectations. And we look at a bit, a bit of that today. Let me just pray. Lord Jesus, as we've already said today, you're the one in charge You're our king, you're our Lord, you're the one we trust. Lord Jesus, we say open our ears, speak to us, open our hearts, soften them so that we can receive your word and respond to it. God, we want to pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation, not so our knowledge can build up, but so that we can know you more. We ask that in Jesus' name, knowing that the Holy Spirit is eager to answer. Amen. Let me just open up this iPad. Okay, I'm first of all, before actually going to Isaiah, I'm just going to read uh, from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in this, what happens is King David uh, has become king of Israel. He's the united kingdom under him. And he's, he's now established as a king, respected as a king amongst the nations, and he has this desire to build a temple for God, because until that stage, God's uh, presence has really dwelt in a tabernacle, in a tent. And he has this desire to build a building that can honor God, where it could be the central place where the people of Israel worship. And he has it in his heart, and he goes to Nathan the prophet and says, look, this is what I want to do. And Nathan says, yeah, do whatever you want. And then Nathan gets interrupted by Nathan then hears from God, Nathan the prophet hears from God, and saying, actually, no, it's not for David to do. It's for David's son, Solomon, to build the temple. Uh, And then uh, Nathan gives some promises uh, that God gives him uh, to David about what his rule will look like as a king. And let me just read those to you, if I can find the verses. Uh, The verses, oh, they're on the board. Brilliant. Sorry about this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it away from King Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In other words, the house of David, the lineage of David, would always have a king on its throne. It would last. It would endure. It wouldn't be a kingdom that fell apart. And that's really helpful for us to understand as we start looking at Isaiah. Isaiah wrote uh, these words around 730 BC. And... At the time, it spoke very much to the people of the age. The passage we're going to look at spoke like a resounding bell in the first century AD. And I also believe it speaks profoundly to us in 21st century UK in a time of certain political turmoil where we're going, what can we trust? What's solid? What can we rely on? But thank God there is a saviour on the throne who we can rely on. And that's what we see. So let me give you a bit of background for Isaiah. Isaiah was the son of Amos. He was a prophet, prophet who lived in and around Jerusalem and prophesied to Israel with a particular focus on Judah during the reign of Uzziah, King Uzziah, King Jotham, uh, King Ahaz, and King Hezekiah. Isaiah prophesied roughly between 740 BC to 700 BC, so a kind of 40-year prophetic ministry. And the book of Isaiah is really a record of some of his prophetic activity. Isaiah might be called the prophet of the New Testament. Isaiah is quoted more than twice as much as any other major prophet from the Old Testament and more than all of the minor prophets combined. It's a key prophetic book that points towards the coming of a Messiah, of a Savior for the people of Israel, and also points how he's going to do that by being a suffering saviour who dies for his people a substitutionary death so that people can know life. Isaiah wrote in a time of uncertainty. Israel's glory years had been some, hundred, two, some 200 years earlier when King David was on the throne and then his son Solomon. At the time of King David and Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was to be envied. It was looked at almost with certain awe from other nations. And then towards the end of King Solomon's life, even though the Bible says, and this is a scary phrase, uh, he was wiser than any other person, he turned away from the living God. Even though he knew lots of things and was very wise, he still became corrupt and turned away from the living God and followed after false gods uh, and really fell to corruption. And when his son became king, in the end, the kingdom of Israel split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So the northern kingdom consisted 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. Do you remember Jacob had 12 sons? We know the story of Joseph in a technicolor dream coat, maybe. Anyway, he had 12 sons. 10 of those aligned with the northern kingdom. They became uh, the northern kingdom. Then you had the southern kingdom, Judah, which consisted of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. So in the northern kingdom, they established a new capital in a place called Shechem. They established two new places where there were shrines for the people to come to worship so they didn't have to worship in Jerusalem. 
So that in these places, in Bethel and in Dan, they established these golden calves that may remind you a bit of a story in Exodus where people, the book of God worshipped a golden calf. And the people, and they developed a whole new priesthood. So the people rejected many of the, or lots of the law of God, and they started worshipping at these idols. They no longer went to Jerusalem. And what you read about the northern kingdom, if you read about its history in the New Old Testament, pretty much, well, every king, if you read uh, sort of kings, you read every king did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. They were consistently turning towards corruption. The kingdom of Judah is slightly different. You had a mixed bag of kings. On the one hand, there were some kings, and you read about them, and it said, they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and they brought religious reforms. So when the people had gone astray, they kind of pulled them back in. And on the other hand, you had some kings of Judah who were pretty dreadful, who also, it says, they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So you've got this mixed bag. So you've got Judah that's sort of a bit crumbling, moving often towards corruption and then getting pulled in by some good kings. You've got Israel, the northern kingdom, that really is in just in disarray and mess. And it's into this context, so 200 years after David and Solomon, that Isaiah is writing. Are we okay with the history lesson so far? <laughs> good. And Isaiah is writing to a divided kingdom. Isaiah's name means Yahweh saves, God saves. And there is only one thing that Isaiah points... Isaiah uses a phrase in his book that no other book uses, which is the Holy One of Israel. God is the Holy One who is set apart, who is to be honoured and respected. It's fascinating. You read when Isaiah was called to be a prophet. It says this in Isaiah 6 verse 1. It might come up on the board. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, a high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It's as if there's a, ju- there's a juxtaposition going, going on there. A king dies, another king comes, another king goes, kingdoms come and go, but God is sitting on his throne. And actually, in these days of political turmoil, that's good to know, isn't it? It's good to know there's God who's sitting on his throne who can be trusted. Okay, let me just explain a bit more the detail of this situation here. If you could sh- uh, put up a map. And I need some volunteers. I need four volunteers. Jamie, you look great. Come up. Oh, you can come up as well. Both of you can come up. Brilliant. Okay, I need two more volunteers. Who's going to be a volunteer? Brilliant. Abby, great. And one more. Peter, you look like a volunteer type. <laughs> well done. Okay, so what we're going to do, each of these people is going to be a king. So we've got here, and we, I'm going to actually move you around a bit. So Peter, I'd love you to come over here. You're at the w- northwest. You're Assyria. So you're Tiglash Pilasar, okay? <laughs> then we've got here, Abby, you are going to be standing here. What we've got here is we've got uh, Rezin, the king of Syria. Okay, Jamie, you need to come just slightly down here, if you could, wouldn't mind. Uh, you can stand up, actually. You're Pekka, the king of Israel, Romalia's son. And then finally, if you could just stand just here, that's perfect. And what we've got here is we've got Ahaz, king of Judah. 
Okay, so we've got, the, we've got certain things going on, and this is the situation in David's day. Now, what you've got is you've got Peter flexing, or Tilglass, as I like to call him, flexing his muscles a bit, <laughs> expanding empire. In fact, the superpower of the day, and what he's doing is he's moving westwards. He's, yeah, it's westwards, isn't it? He's moving westwards uh, to, uh, his, as, his, uh, as his empire is expanding. You've got these countries, Syria and Israel, getting quite scared because Syria is approaching them. They're the superpower of the world. They're going to take them over. So what do they do? They have a little chat to each other and go, look, Peter's gigantic. He's about to take us over. So what? I mean, muscular, muscular. So <laughs> what we're going to do, <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to form an alliance. We're going to stand together. There's going to be a coalition so we can fight against Assyria. And now they look and they go, my word. OK, we've got this alliance, but we're still not quite strong enough to take on Assyria. So what we need to do is we need to get Judah also to be involved. <laughs> so, so they have a conversation. They ask Judah to get involved. You can actually do this. You're brilliant at acting. <laughs> but Judah says, no, I'm not interested. So you, so, you go and st- so you go and stand here, and you stay back where you are. Anyway, so as often happens in political situations, when countries are rejected, they sometimes don't like it too much, do they? And what they sometimes do is they exert a bit of force. So what happens is you have these Syria and Israel uniting forces to attack Judah, take them over, dispose the king and put a puppet king in its place so they've now got three countries side by side to defend Assyria. So that's the situation we find ourselves in. Uh, Judah's about to be attacked. King Ahaz is sitting there slightly nervous. Does everyone get the geography and what's going on? Brilliant. Okay, you can all sit down. Thank you so much. Okay, so that was about 734 BC, 732 to 734 BC. So the Assyrian Empire is sweeping westwards. Now, the key question, so so you've got Judah feeling, King Ahaz feeling very insecure. He's going, I've got Assyria, this gigantic superpower coming towards me. I've got Syria and I've got Israel now that want to attack me. What do I do? What do I do? And he's asking the question, where, where do I put my trust? Is the big question here. Do I go for political alliances? Do I maybe go, let me speak to the king of Assyria and beg that he won't attack? Do I maybe go down to Egypt and go and speak to the king of Egypt and say, hey, look, maybe we can team, team up? What does he do? And it's into this context of political turmoil, of threat that Isaiah writes. Now we get to the text. Are we okay there? Good. So let's read it. Isaiah chapter 7. Hopefully it will make a bit more sense to you now. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah... Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Romalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So, The king of Judah hears about this imminent attack that's going to take place. And 
he has a very natural response. He's scared. And all the people are scared. I mean, it's very vivid language, isn't it? They start shaking. Uh, but what's striking about it is it doesn't just say when the king of Israel, when the king of Judah heard about this news or when the people heard this news. It, said, it says this. It says, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, and the heart of his people shook, shook as if the, like the trees. What's fascinating is they use the phrase this house of David. That should be a sig- that's a signal word to us. Why is that being used? It's because the house of David has these prophecies spoken over it about being an enduring kingdom, about being one that will last. They've got promises God's spoken over them. But when Ahaz hears the news, his response is one of terror. And what's fascinating is instead of the king of Judah immediately calling the people of God and saying, hey guys, let's start praying, let's call out to God and let's seek God's face. That's not what he does. Let's read verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smouldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Romalia. Because Syria, with Ephraim, the son of Romalia, has devised the evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tebal as king in the midst of it. Says, Thus says the Lord, and we'll look at that in a moment. What's fascinating is what's Ahaz doing? He's outside the city. He's looking at the water. He's looking at the waters that's actually going into the city. So he's going. I'm aware of the, if our city comes under attack, we need to protect our water supply. So he's there doing lots of practical things to get ready for an attack. Now, actually, doing practical things when a crisis emerges is fine. That's not a bad thing at all. But he hasn't remembered the promises of God. And he hasn't called the people of God to prayer. Rather, he's immediately gone into let's fix it mode. Let's prepare. Let me see what I can do with my resources to fight to sort this problem out. And I think there's a challenge for us there. And I think the challenge for us is this. When crisis emerges, and we all have crises to certain lesser or greater degrees, what's our response? Is our response immediately to go, okay, I'm going to get my resources together and sort it out? Is our response to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need your help. Let's sort this thing out. And I th- what you see in Ahaz is very little dependence and trust in God and a great deal of trust in trying to use his own resources. And that's a challenge to us, because I see my default can so easily be one of let me try and solve it, rather than let me go to God. I can see an Ahaz element in my heart. Anyway, God encourages Ahaz, gives him, starts giving them prophetic words, saying, don't worry about these f- smouldering firebrands. Uh, they're not going to get very far. And then this prophetic word comes, it shall not stand. And it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. 
and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So he's pointing to these kingdoms saying, look, they're not going to succeed against you. But Ahaz, you need to stand in faith. In this, you need to be one who puts everything in trusting me. If, you don't, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Now, what's interesting is Isaiah doesn't just bring his son along for the journey just for the fun of it. Isaiah, when he goes to meet with uh, King Ahaz, there's a reason he brings his son along. The name of his son uh, is, what it means is, a remnant shall return. It's a prophetic sign to Ahaz. Now, it's it's a prophetic sign that gives hope. It's also a prophetic sign that gives a warning. It's a warning of judgment, because if the people of God continue to turn away from God, the people of God will be taken into exile. And this actually eventually happened under the Babylonian Empire another 110 years later, where the people of Judah were taken into exile. But also it's a message of hope. There's an everlasting kingdom uh, that's been prophesied about. And he says a remnant will return. Actually, in the story of Isaiah, as you read it, there's always this hope of even if the majority of the people are turning away and are corrupted and are not following the living God, there are some who remain faithful. There remain some who believe the promises. There will always be, not many maybe, but there will always be some who are trusting in the living God. So there's this provocation. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And Ahaz is called to put all his trust in God. But God, God knows Ahaz is questioning and still thinking about all these political alliances. And God is very gracious. I love the tenderness of God in this passage. He's already prophesied that it won't come to anything. And then he speaks uh, to Ahaz, to, to strengthen his faith even more. Let's, let's read on, verse 10 to 12. And the Lord spoke to Ahaz again. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. So God says, look, if you really want to believe I'm going to be good on my word, ask for a sign and I'll fulfill it to prove that I'm capable to do what I say I'm going to do. What an amazing offer and gracious offer from God. But Ahaz's response may look religious, it may look pious, but this is what he says. I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now that may come across all very nice, but actually God said to him, ask for a sign, and he says, no, I'm not going to. No, I'm not going to do what you've told me to. Now, there's sometimes, there is, if we ask for a sign, we say, God, unless you do this, I will not believe you. That's wrong. But when God says to someone, ask for a sign, and then they refuse to ask for it, that shows a hardness of heart. It shows that Ahaz seems like didn't really want to believe the promises of God or have to take it seriously. 
There's some clear disconnect there. But I just think there's this graciousness of God going, look, let me just confirm this to you. And Ahaz going, no, I'm not interested. So then God says to Ahaz, okay, well, if you're not going to do that, I'm going to give you a sign. But there's this scary twist in verse 12, in verse 13. And he said, hear then, O house of David. Again, this promised people. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Now, what's fascinating is in verse 10, God has spoken to Isaiah and said, ask of your God for a sign. Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to do that. Then Isaiah says, why do you weary my God? You know, there's a recognition with the response that Ahaz gives that the, the Lord, the God of heaven, is not Ahaz's God. He's Isaiah's God. Isaiah's trusting him. But Ahaz is showing lack of belief, lack of trust. So he's, and that's a scary place to be when it's, instead of, he's my God, oh, he's just your God. And the privilege for us as Christians is we come to know our God. He's our Father in heaven. Anyway, so there's this sign that comes, that God brings, and it's, this is what it says. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That means God with us. He shall eat curds and honey, and when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon the people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the days that Ephraim Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the ends of the streams of Egypt, that's Assyria, and for the bee that is at the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. We can continue, but let's stop there. So when we read prophetic books, and I think the challenge for us often reading prophetic books like Isaiah, is the prophets on the one hand, so there might be a picture coming up, uh, the prophets on the one hand talk about, the speak directly into the situation of that day. So they speak about what was happening at 730 BC, and they're speaking directly into that. At the same time, prophets also sometimes speak about events that are in the future, far into the future, in a different age. Now, the challenge for us when we read a prophetic book, and which I find difficult, is asking the question, when is the, what is the prophet speaking to? Is he speaking to the present age? Is he speaking about something in the future age? Is he actually at the same time speaking to both? And that's the challenge sometimes of interpreting prophetic books. I want to suggest in this context, Isaiah was speaking both to the present age and to the future age. So let's just first of all look at it through the lens of the present age. So Isaiah is saying this. He's saying, actually, 
Ahaz, you're unbelieving and you don't, you're not confident that I'm able to protect you. But there is a maiden. There will be uh, at least a maiden, uh, someone who's yet to be married, who's still a virgin, who believes the promises of God. And she, in the coming years, even though you kind of lost hope in me, she is going to conceive. She is going to name, almost prophetically, her son Emmanuel, which means God's with us. So it looks like it's all dreadful, but God is with us. And she's going to, in faith, name her child Emmanuel. And then Isaiah explains, actually, within a very short time, these two nations that have come to attack you, they'll be deserted. They'll be no more. Because he says, sort of, by the time the child can know right from wrong, these kings, will be, these kings who are oppressing you, will be, uh, will have desert, their lands will be deserted. Interestingly, when it talks about them, uh, him uh, eating curds and honey, curds and honey weren't the food of the wealthy. They were foods of poverty. So he's saying, look, Judah, you, Judah will be in a case of poverty. There will, be, there will be poverty in the land. But these two kings that are oppressing you, by the time this child's grown up, they'll be no longer in existence. They'll, they'll be no longer uh, a threat to you. And actually, that's what you find. You find what happened as Syria did attack. Uh, Assyria did attack uh, Syria first. And in 732 BC, uh, it fell to Assyria. Israel was attacked by Assyria. In 722 BC, it fell. The people of Judah lived in poverty. And they were oppressed also by Assyria. And actually, it looked like they were about to collapse. And then uh, in 701 BC, according to the books we read, Jerusalem was saved uh, when God did a remarkable deliverance. But really, until that stage, Assyria had been pressing on, and the people were living in dreadful pressure, dreadful poverty, dreadful difficulty. So in Isaiah's age, this word was fulfilled. And I think it's perfectly acceptable to assume that that a lady became pregnant and chose, I'm going to name my child God with us, especially after Isaiah had spoken this prophetic word. But there's also the bigger lens of the future. Something more profound that Isaiah uh, prophesied about a supernatural birth, about a coming in the dawning of a new age. And following the end of the Old Testament, there were 400 years of silence. No scripture books were written. It was just these years of silence. And then there begins to be these rumblings. John the Baptist comes on the scene and starts explaining a Messiah's coming. And we read in Matthew 1 these words. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Before they came together means before they had made love. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, 
resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Now these words will be familiar. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. And you got this remarkable moment where there was this prophecy that had in part been filled in Isaiah's age, but suddenly Jesus is. Mary conceives by the Holy Spirit, never having slept with anybody. The Holy. Uh, and this child is growing in her. And Matthew then writes actually, this is the fulfillment. This is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophetic word that Isaiah gave in Isaiah 7. And he's so much greater a saviour uh, than you could possibly anticipate. This is what John writes about Jesus at the beginning of his gospel. Uh, John describes Jesus as the word of God, and he says this, In the beginning was the word, so before all things, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then we read these verses a bit further down. And the word, that's God, God incarnate, the word, Jesus Christ, became flesh. And dwelt amongst us. No better way could Emmanuel come than God coming to be amongst his people. Jesus, the Bible, te- the Bible teaches us Jesus was a fully God and fully man. That when people looked and saw Jesus acting, they were looking at the very, when Jesus was doing something, that was the very thing that God was doing. It was God with human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Like the child born in the prophecy, Jesus was born in poverty. When he was dedicated at the temple, his parents gave the poorest offering. They couldn't give any more. Just as the people of Israel were in a born, were living in uh, people of Judah were living in turmoil. Jesus was born. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was born uh, into, a, in, into a country that was under Roman occupation. A people who longed to be set free from their oppressors. The people of Israel were longing for a Messiah, a Messiah to come who would rescue them from their oppressor. And for their, in their mind, that was the Roman Empire. And the saviour of the world, God incarnate, came and lived amongst an imperfect people. He came and dwelt amongst us. The story of the Bible from chapter 3 onwards is that we live in a broken world. You know that, I know that. When we look at the political scene at the moment, we see a system that looks pretty broken at the moment. 
Emmanuel, Jesus, the Savior, came to bring restoration. He came to destroy the greatest enemies of sin, death, Satan. As the Gospels unfold, we see how Jesus forgave people, how Jesus rose people from the dead. We see how he set people free from Satan's power. At Christmas, we celebrate the Savior coming into the world, born in fragility and as a baby. At Easter, we celebrate uh, his ultimate victory over death, Satan, and sin as he died on a cross for us, carrying our sin and our brokenness and our weakness and our shame, conquering death, and three days later being raised to life because death could not hold him. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. The one that Isaiah prophesied about to a people who were just desperate and in hopelessness. And he says, this one's coming. He's coming. He's the one who can save you. And he came. And he has made a way. And he's made a way for broken people to come and know freedom. He's made a way for people without hopelessness to find hope. He's made a way for people who live in confusion and uncertainty and feel disconnect to know God, to know hope, to know reality and life in all its fullness. That's what he came to do. That's what he still comes to do. That's why we as a church gather and celebrate. Because when Jesus came to the world, the angel said this, he is good news of great joy for all people. So today we've got churches in Turkey, in Istanbul, worshipping Jesus. We've got churches in China, in the Philippines. In America, later on today, there'll be people worshipping Jesus because Jesus is the saviour of the world who came to restore a broken world and bring life. That's what we celebrate, people. And that's why we're gathered today, because we remember that one day when we were broken, when we were lost, when we didn't know where to go, while we were still sinners, Paul writes, Christ died for the ungodly. He came, God with us, to restore us to relationship with God. So, Where am I going? So there's this big lens picture of the future of what Isaiah prophesied. There's this small lens thing of what took place in this, at the time. But the key thing is, in each instance, God was with the faithful ones who remained. Jesus came, God with us, to rescue, the, to save the world, to save anyone who would put their trust in him. So what can we learn from this passage? So I'm coming into land. I want to say, first of all, Isaiah's message is a message of hope. Because it points to the sending of a saviour to undo the brokenness in the world. And to help restore our broken relationships with God and with each other. It's a message of hope because the Saviour, God with us, did not just come to save a people, the people of Israel, the people of Judah. He came to save all peoples of the world. Secondly, as well as it being a message of hope, Isaiah asks us, where are we putting our trust? Today, where are you putting your hope? Who are you putting your hope in or what are you putting your hope in?
You see, King Ahaz was going, there's threats coming. And everything in him, instead of trusting in God, said, let me put my hope in political alliances. Listen, let me just speak directly into uh, the political situation at the moment. I think it's right for Christians to engage in politics. I think it's right for us to engage uh, in praying for our leaders and praying for this election coming up. And I think it's right for us to have discussions about Brexit. I think that's all good. But do we, do we spend the same amount of time praying for our nation and trusting God with entrusting it to God as we do just talking about it where does our do we put our hope I think one thing we're learning is we can't just put our hope in the political system to be the answer for our, our country it's just messy at the moment but we can trust God and in the midst of a general election where at the moment I'm looking at and I'm going I honestly just find it really difficult to see a good way ahead thank praise God that he's on his throne Praise God that he's on his throne and a general election will come on the 12th of December. A leader will come, a leader will go. But God's on his throne. That's good news, folks. That's really good news. But also, there's this kind of thing of who, what do we put our hope in as a nation and as people? Do we trust it? But there's this bigger thing about in our lives, what do we put our hope in? What are we putting our trust in? You see, when we, when, if you're a Christian here today and you put your faith in Jesus, you said to him, you're my Lord and you're my saviour. Now the challenge is when you say to Jesus, you're my Lord, it means actually you're going to be the centre of my orbit. You're going to be the one who calls the shots in my life. My life's going to be orientated about what you are calling me to do. Now, the challenge of that is some of the things Jesus says sometimes don't seem very logical. Sometimes they're really hard to follow. In an age, how living for Jesus affects how we look after our money, how we deal in our relationships with people. It affects, uh, it affects how we work and whether we're honest in the workplace. There's loads of ramifications for Jesus being Lord of our lives. And sometimes it's easier, if we're honest, to not fully trust him in those things. Sometimes it's easier to go the easier way that the culture's going than the way that Jesus would have us go. And the call from Isaiah is, put your trust in God, even if it is the difficult, even if it does seem the difficult way, and even if it is the narrow road. And that's what Jesus taught as well. Put... Choose a narrow way that leads to life. And today, we're, there's a choice for us. Am I going to put my trust fully in God? Am I going to put my trust fully in God? Or am I going to kind of muddle along and go, this area of my life I'll trust him in, this area of life I'll go my own way. Just say scripturally, that's not really an option. You're all in or not. And we've got the story. We can do what Ahaz did. Or let me just throw in, we could do what Joshua did. Let me just finish. The, the tragedy is, if you read uh, in 2 Kings, you actually find out what Ahaz did do. Let me just read it. 
Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his fathers had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, just followed the culture. He even burned his sons as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And then this threat comes in, and you read a few verses on. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I'm your servant, I'm your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel, who were attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. So there were these prophetic words Trust me. Lean into me. Don't go for political alliances, was what God said to us, Ahaz. But he went for political alliances. He rejected the words of God and went, no, actually, I'm going this way. Turnsley, we've got Joshua. He stands up in front of the people of Israel and says to this to them, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's stand up, let's respond, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you are trustworthy, that kingdoms come and go, but you're the king who reigns on your throne and you are to be trusted. We thank you for the wonder of God with us. We want to thank you that you came, you dwelt amongst us, you, uh, that prophetic words was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. We want to thank you for the privilege we know that you are with us today. And God, today we want to choose almost to examine our lives and go, well, are we trusting you? Are we putting our faith in you? And we want to say, Lord Jesus, we want to put our trust in you. We want to be all in. We want to uh, say you are God and there is no other. We want to come and say, Lord, we, we look to our nation. We say, Lord, we recognize the hope for our nation as much as politicians can bring help and bring benefit. We recognize you're the Lord of the nations. Everything's under your control. And even whether we may feel shaky about what looks, lies ahead, we want to thank you that just as you knew what would happen with Judah, you know what will happen with us in our country. Lord, we want to say we want to uh, just bring our nation to you. We say, Lord, have your way. We ask for your help, King Jesus. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for the security of knowing there's a God in heaven who's in charge. Help us trust you. Help us throw our allegiance entirely onto you, even when it looks scary and sometimes even looks illogical. Amen.